Our guest speaker this morning is Benjamin Riggs. Ben serves as an instructor of Buddhist meditation for the Refuge Meditation Group and has practiced and studied under many great teachers, including HH 16, no, 14, Dalai Lama, Geshe Sanam Rinche, like he said, and Jetson Thubden. Okay. Um, it's nice to have you here, Ben. His group meets every Thursday evening at Brown Chapel on Centenary's campus at 7.30 if you want to go. Welcome, Ben. I'm going to sit down, so I think this is good. If I can fit underneath the top of the podium here. Um, I'd like to first of all, you know, thank uh, Barbara and Susan. I'm knocking all your stuff off. <laughs> um, I'd like to thank Barbara and Susan for the opportunity to come and speak today. Um, and... Basically, uh, the talk, you know, if you look on the front of the handout, said uh, it was about, uh, I think, violence, pacifism, and the possibility of freedom from both. Um, and that comes from the title of an essay that I wrote on the subject matter. Um, and the way that I started, you know, sat down and started writing this essay was uh, two reasons, really, or... The first one is that being a meditation instructor, one of the things that I, I have to do frequently is think about different ways to talk about meditation. Because just sitting down and, you know, on the floor in complete silence is not something that just sounds very exciting. And so thinking of different angles to approach it from and make it something which uh, seems a bit more interesting to people who have never done it before and get them involved in it is something I frequently try to do. And then the uh, probably the more important reason, is that too loud? Okay. So I'm like beating y'all's ears up with my voice. Um, the, uh, probably the more important reason uh, for writing it was uh, being a meditation instructor also brings with it like I'm supposed to be like certain things, I think. Uh, like I, and nobody told me this, I just sort of assumed them on my own. But I just naturally thought I was supposed to be a pacifist, a vegetarian, uh, and just all sorts of stuff, you know. And I just sort of took those things with me. And then I noticed myself in conversations with very intelligent people who knew a lot about history and politics. And we'd start talking about pacifism and things like that. And I noticed my views were getting challenged. And I noticed a lot of the times that uh, I was trying to sell my opinion to them. And so uh, once I noticed that I was trying to more or less convince them that I was right and I had no real direct knowledge or understanding as to why I believed the things that I was believing other than I just thought I was supposed to, I went in my room one day and I pulled out a journal. I just sat down and I started writing about it. And once it became 17 pages long, I decided it probably doesn't need to be in my journal. 
Um, and so I moved it over to a notebook, and then it grew to be like 80-something pages long, and it was this essay about, uh, you know, violence, uh, war, politics, and all these different things, and whether or not they're effective, whether or not they're necessary, um, and is there a better way? Um, is there something else that, you know, the world can, you know, look forward to, or not even look forward to, but start right now? Um, and, and, and change the way that, uh, you know, people interact with one another. So basically, as I sat down and I started to think about these things, um, the very first thing that I realized I had to do was I had to get out of my, like, I had to clear my head, basically. I had to get it out of my mind that uh, I, had, I couldn't reject or accept um, pacifism or non, non, you know, nonviolent resistance prior to investigation, and I couldn't do... I, like with war and violence and politics and things like that. I couldn't accept or reject those things prior to investigation either. And then I just sat down and I asked myself, like, what is war? What is conflict? And it was a very sort of introspective process, you know, sort of like going in and asking myself these questions and looking at them for myself. And, um, and this is where it sort of started to grow. And it was by asking myself these questions that uh, not only did I find a very interesting angle to look at meditation from, but I also found, um, you, know, a, you know, an answer to my question, you know, is there something other than violence and sort of like pacifistic resistance or, you know, activism and things like that? Is there another option? Um, and so basically the way the journey uh, or the sort of search began was when I asked myself this question like what is conflict what is war um, whenever I whenever I looked at it the first thing that seemed absolutely necessary for me before violence or conflict or war or any of those things could emerge was there had to be division if there's not if there's not the multiplicity if there's not the two the separation then there can't be um, any aggression and so the first prerequisite for all of this had to be division um, and then on the basis of these divisions um, there was interaction you know between the various groups and all this stuff and then based on the interaction or the relationships that the groups had um, they would receive information back and then they would judge this information they would judge this information, and basically what they would, you know, the, the way that they would judge it was from their own point of view. It'd be one culture judging another culture or one group of people judging another group of people based on this particular group of people's shared experience. And what they were trying to determine was always whether or not this relationship is profitable or threatening. And so on a much larger scale, it seemed like a sort of like a selfish or self-centered perspective. And... You know, I just sort of kept going from there. And, and, and I don't think that any of those questions were necessarily like uh, um, stuff you have to pull out books for. They're very common sense. Like, I mean, in most of the relationships I have on a day-to-day -day basis, this is how they happen. Um, just sort of, I have to see, first of all, most of the time I see myself as something other than you. And then I talk to you, I interact with you, and then based on the information... You know, I make decisions about the future of our relationship. You know, if you tell me, if you're very nice and polite, then I may, you know, ask you for your phone number or suggest we meet up and talk again. If you tell me you're going to bash my face in with a stapler, I'm probably going to avoid that. And so, um, you know, um, 
and then as they move forward, they start the, the relationships become more complex. Uh, they start labeling the relationship. Um, it becomes friend, enemy, or allies, and things like this. Um, and it's at that point that action seems to be implied. Because if I consider someone a friend, the natural consequence of seeing them as a friend is that I will treat them as a friend. But if I see them as an enemy, the natural consequence of seeing them as an enemy is I will treat them as an enemy. And the natural, normal um, reaction to being treated like an enemy is treating them like one too. And so over time, the situation just sort of escalates until now you have conflict. And, and, and that seems to be the inevitable result of this initial dis, uh, foundation, this, uh, this separation, this division. Doesn't, it just seems to be a natural consequence of that. And so, you know, that doesn't really address the question in any shape, way, form, or fashion, you know, is war necessary? Is violence necessary? Are, are there other options? It just feels so natural to lean into the microphone, even though I know. <laughs> um, and, but before I could ask, like, is war effective or is violence necessary and all these questions, I had to ask myself, what is it that you're trying to accomplish by going to war? What is it that conflict is meant to, you know, create or, you know, secure? Um, and I'm sure that you could compile a list 25 miles long of the various justifications that have been given for going to war um, or, you know, little skirmishes, battles, all sorts of things, even with your husband or your wife. But um, I'm sure most every one of them could be reduced down to security. Um, I'm sure most every one of them could be reduced down to uh, whether economic security, political security, you know, cultural security. In some way, someone or something felt threatened. Their way of life in some shape, way, form, or fashion seemed vulnerable. And war or violent, you know, armed conflict is meant to eliminate that threat and secure whatever that way of life is that, you know, they're protecting. And so... And, you know, at this stage in the game, I could finally ask myself the question that I wanted to ask myself, but I swore I wouldn't until I had done the things that I said I was going to do, which is sort of like develop a structure for what all of this was, which is, is war necessary or is it effective? And I was so disappointed, like, because I wanted it to be much more complex so I could keep going, because at this point I was actually enjoying what I was writing. And um, whenever I asked myself this question, it was like, well, how many wars have there been? Because whenever we talk about effective and we talk about providing security, essentially what we're asking is, is it's no different than can a doctor cure um, an illness? And if the doctor says he can cure the illness and he gives you the treatment for it, and then the illness isn't cured, and 10 years later, you know, you relapse from it or something like that, well, it might have been a good treatment, but it wasn't a cure. It was a complete failure as a cure. And so when it comes to whether or not war can um, treat the problem, I wasn't much concerned with that. I was concerned with whether or not war could once and for all eliminate whatever threat it was that they perceived and provide them with lasting security. And immediately upon asking myself that question, I, was, I had to ask myself, well, how many wars have there been? 
because it seems like America, I think, averages a war once every ten and a half years. Um, there are countries in the war right, world right now that have been fighting for 24, 25, 26 years straight, continuously. Um, and then, you know, there's everything in between that. And so, I mean, the answer, even though it was disappointing, had to be, without a doubt, no, war can't do it because we keep having to reapply the treatment over and over and over again. It can't, it's not addressing whatever the fundamental problem is. It's a Band-Aid. And especially in regards to, you know, the topic of war and violence, where so many people's lives are at stake, I don't think a Band-Aid is, you know, the reapplication of the same dirty Band-Aid over and over and over and over again is a bit more serious than, you know, maybe if we're talking about, you know, treating common cold or cough or something like that. It's much more serious because so many more people's lives are at stake. And it's just the reapplication of this Band-Aid. And so immediately, and I'm moving kind of quick and cutting a lot of stuff out because of time constraints, um, but we are doing this brown bag special on the same topic this Wednesday where we'll be able to go more into it. Um, and so, you know, skipping along quite a bit, I, the next question which seemed um, pretty relevant and I asked myself was, well, who, who, whose responsibility is it to solve this? And I immediately thought to myself, well, this seems like something politics is supposed to deal with. Whether that be through the democratic process and all of us electing them or, you know, whatever, a coup and let's uh, do it like they did down in Cuba or whatever. Um, but I thought politics was meant to solve it. And, there, and there's an awful lot of uh, paper and ink wasted on um, politics in, in this essay. And I can only touch briefly on some of the points, but I think some of them are very important. Um, and some of the reasons why I don't think politics is, A, an effective route, and B, um, uh, capable even. Um, in its best-case scenario, even capable of solving the problem. Um, and the first point that I want to bring up is that, especially at the executive branch, once you get to the very top of politics... It's at that point that, um, uh, like, perhaps on a domestic level, there seems to be a great deal of difference between a Republican and, Demo and a Democrat, per se, um, at home. But then once you go abroad and you start looking at foreign policy, the differences become smaller and smaller and smaller. And there's a very simple reason for that, is that they're governed by the exact same principle, and that principle is our country's interest versus your country's interest. I mean, it's always going to be, because they are the elected representatives of this country. So they show up as a representative of this country's interest, and it's versus your interest, or versus their interest, you see? And so it's automatically the politician is pitted against other. Um, and then... You know, and sort of tag, uh, following up on that same point, that 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 other, um, the being the pit, being pitted against, is a consequence of the division that I talked about earlier. It's a natural consequence of that, and the the next stage in that whole process of you know division, interaction, and then getting the information and judging the information, and then um, producing these labels of friend, ally, and all of that. 
the, the system which governs all of that is called politics. Politics is the system which overlooks that entire process, monitors these relationships, and determines how it is that it's going to you know, move forward from here. Politics can't be expected to fix that or, uh, because in order to fix it, it has to eliminate division, which means destroy the whole system and start over. So you can't expect politics to fall in on itself. And furthermore, whenever you start to talk about the conflict, um, and I think this is a very important point, and this relates to each and every one of us, uh, is when you start to talk about the conflict, it's not people that are in collision with one another. It's ideas, it's ways of life, it's the will of those people. And our, um, speaking from you know being an American, um, our way of life is, there's many different aspects of it, but largely in part, it's consumer-based. It's capitalistic, which means it needs profit, and voters are happy when economies are prosperous and they can enjoy the benefits of a, a stimulated economy. And how do you get the economy stimulated? There are a bunch of different ways. One of those ways is to open markets in foreign areas so that your companies can go over there and make money. We don't like $4 gas. We like $2 gas. How do you get $2 gas? You allow Shell and ExxonMobil to negotiate contracts with uh, Iraq, like they did this past week, um, to have huge uh, untapped oil fields. And all of those things are the product of conflict. And unfortunately, um, most of us, we don't ask the questions, um, why is my gas $2 as opposed to 4 We don't want to know the answer. That's the most unfortunate part, is we would rather um, be ignorant about it and just, for the most part, you know, maybe pop off a few Bush's and idiot comments or Obama just talks and there's nothing behind it, things, but we don't want to really get into it and deal with what it means to change that system. And so, you know, going through there and seeing um, over probably 25 pages and having to deal with, like, for example, this week the Supreme Court said that um, corporations can't be limited in how much they contribute to politicians. That's terrible. That's, that's very scary. And then there's private militaries and all this different stuff. So there's like 25, 30 pages just devoted to politics and corporations and things like that. But, you know, for the sake of conversation, moving along and saying, well, how do we solve the problem? Um, and, and the most common sense uh, response to that question seems to be, well, if division is at the very foundation of the problem, if it's the most fundamental aspect of the problem, then it would seem that unity, oneness, whatever um, you want to call it, is going to be the essence of nonviolence or peace. There's going to be that lack of division. And I want to pause briefly to say that it can't be idealistic. And that's the problem, and there's a lot of paper devoted to this in the essay too, that I have with a lot of activist groups. They're very idealistic. It's not that the ideas are bad, but it's their ideas. They have to be, they have to be, there has to be depth, there has to be weight behind what we're saying, which means that there has to be direct experience. We have to know oneness. We have to know the singularity. Um, it can't just be something we got out of like a uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson poem or something like that. It has to be something that we experience, that we know in our own lives. 
And so, as you, you know, as I move forward, I started to ask myself, well, is it even real? Is it just something that, uh, you know, um, St. John of the Cross and a few other mystics you know, in history have talked about, or is it something that is real and present? And so I started looking at the different forms of division that, um, that exist, the things that separate us. And, I mean, there's tons of them. Um, but I just looked at and am going to share with you a few of the more obvious ones, which are things like uh, national divides. Like, are they intrinsic or are they just things we made up? I mean, the land itself is moving, so clearly the divides aren't intrinsic, you know, like, for all the way from, like, Pangea till today, you know, it's not like Oklahoma was always there. Um, it's something that was created um, by people and um, can be disassembled by people as well. Just look at Tibet. Um, or if you want to see a new one, see Pakistan. You know, right after uh, India's independence, Pakistan just pops up. And so it's not that these features are intrinsic. People just make them up whenever it sort of uh, is profitable or fruitful for their political agenda. Um, And then so I looked at another one like culture. And while culture is an incredibly interesting facet, multifaceted uh, phenomena that um, we see in all human societies, it nevertheless is the product of groups of people huddling up behind imaginary lines and living there for long periods of time and then passing that product on to the next generation. Um, it's not to say that it's bad or that we, we should stop all culture. Um, I'm not Mao, but uh, I, I do think that uh, it's important that, um, that we recognize that culture isn't a barrier. It's something that you can share as opposed to, you know, it's not like a levy or a wall. Um, and then there's all these other different things like race, which I don't even think I need to mention. I know that race is not a barrier, and I'm sure most people in here do. Language, there's probably people in here who speak more than one. There's no, I mean, all of these barriers are not that important. And, but those were the themes that hold groups together. Those, those ideas of, you know, religion being a barrier or something like that, well, that's, that's, I mean, how many people in this room, you know, you probably have people in this room that consider themselves Christians. You have people, I know at least one who considers himself a Buddhist and so on and so forth. Um, And we're all sitting in the same room. So those things aren't barriers. And once you start to pick apart those themes, the glue that holds groups together begins to dissolve and the groups begin to, you know, sort of disperse. And then you're just left with individuals. Because that's all the group was in the first place. It was a collection of individuals that identified with the similar or same idea. And as you start to look at these individuals, what makes them unique? What separates you from you and me from you and all this stuff? And it's our story. It's I've done this, I've done that, I've done this, which is nothing more than really what we think about our lives. Um, It's our perspective on our own lives. You know, uh, the example I use in the essay is um, I'm sure that, um, you know, Kevin Rudd, who is the prime minister of England, has no idea what it's like to be asleep in his room at 2 a.m. Somebody kick the door open, drag him out of his room, bring him out to the bush, put a gun in his hand, train him and force him to fight in the war um, under the threat of mutilation. I bet that's never happened to Kevin Rudd. Um, but I bet Kevin Rudd do know, does know um, what it feels like to be afraid 
what it feels like to be angry, what it feels like to be lonely, and all these things. And a child soldier in Uganda and Kevin Kevin Rudd share those things. They both, beyond what they think about their lives or the commentary on it, the story of it, the experience is the same. The human experience is the same. That's what it means to be human. Go beyond what I think about my life, beyond the commentary. Not that my story is not important. I think that it is, but it's not a barrier. It's not something which separates me from someone else. It's just a bunch of thoughts describing my particular experience. And so as you start to move on, um, time? Um, as you start to move on, basically the point that I want to get to and close with is um, this, once you move past, get to and close with, is um, this, once you move past the story and you get into the basic experience, you see that things, there is no, this separation isn't there. The faculty which creates this separation is called consciousness. And the most fundamental expression of consciousness we have is language. And in language, you'll see that one of the most basic rules is that in order to form a complete sentence, I have to be other than you and we need to be verbing. Um, And so in this interaction, um, essentially uh, what happens is in order to form a complete me, in order to have a complete expression of me, I have to be divided. And that's absolutely insane. That doesn't make any sense. I have to, there has to be division or fragmentation in order to have a complete me because I have to be other than. And so there's a conflict in us all the time. And in so many different ways, this conflict manifests itself in our daily lives. One of those ways is war. One of those ways is violence. Resolving that all that's required to resolve that is to sit and to look at our own mind, our own state of mind, our own hearts, whatever, and resolve that conflict that's in us. If we resolve the conflict that's within us, the, the, um, the motivations for war won't even be there because the insecurity won't be there, which was you know, initially the reason why we had the divide was to keep certain people at bay while cultivating one's relationships with ones that we felt more comfortable with. And that's what meditation is concerned with. The practice of meditation is concerned with putting everything we think about life aside and being willing to simply observe it, to simply observe life. Not from our point of view or from someone else's point of view, but from life's point of view, to experience God from God's point of view. And the only way we can do that is if we allow what we think about life to subside or what we think about God to subside. And so I really thank you all for the opportunity to come and speak today. If I went over a little bit, I'm sorry. Um, And you all have a nice uh, world religion day.